somebody who strikes that perfect balance where they understand that there's life outside of the gym, but at the same time, they're serious about their goals and they know what they have to do to accomplish them. And that's your home run right there. Welcome to How Do You Feel, a podcast with info and inspo to help you tune in to your fitness, nutrition, and mindset. I'm your host, Casey Zavaleta, and together we'll explore how we can optimize our physical and mental health so that we radiate positivity and happiness from the inside out. Hi guys, welcome to the podcast this week. I want to be completely honest and share that my motivation this week for training was super low. So I'm feeling kind of blah about that. I think it's important to realize that like anything, performance and motivation wax and wane. And just because I'm a trainer doesn't mean I'm immune to that. We all go through these phases. I know that hormonally, the place that I'm at in my cycle probably played a role in this. And I also know that my mood played a role in this. My mood hasn't been amazing lately, and I haven't had that same confidence and drive in myself that I normally have. I haven't been quite as on top of accomplishing things. When I'm getting shit done, it always feeds into me feeling really energized and proud of myself. I've also been having weird, not so great thoughts about my body that I haven't had in forever. So I'm not really sure what's up with that, but I've certainly been battling those. Overall, I just feel like my energy and thoughts have been a little bit flatter and a little bit more gloomy than normal. Mentally, I don't think my head was in the game, but also physically, my body just felt kind of off. It didn't feel mobile and strong in the same way that it normally does. So I decided to take a pause from my normal program and not force myself to do it while the motivation wasn't there. And I just found other ways to move all week. I went for a little jog one day. I took a random class one day. I kind of made up a workout on the fly in the gym another day. That was just things that I felt more motivated to do and it felt like they were gonna be good for my body. However, at All Day Fit, it was the last week of our three month strong academy program. So the girls that were in that program just finished up three months of strength training, of learning, of really consistent freaking awesome workouts. So it was a really exciting week in those classes. I saw so many of my clients and the girls in my groups that were so motivated to be there and hit those goals that they had set for themselves at the beginning of Academy. So I think I was struggling with watching that and feeling so proud and connected to that, but also knowing that I wasn't feeling the same way in my training. And I think it's normal for some of the questions to creep into your head like, What's wrong with me right now? Why can't I find the same motivation that I normally have? I think that at one point in my training career, I would have felt a lot of guilt around that. And I would have felt like I wasn't living up to the expectations that people have of a trainer to be motivated all the time, to hit every single workout and kill it. But as the time has passed, I've learned to be way more compassionate with myself and realize that like I said, I can't always be at an all-time high as far as motivation is concerned. So instead of getting down on myself, taking an opportunity to step back and think about why that might have been. And I'm also reminding myself that I'm playing the long game in my fitness here. One week of training of not following my program isn't going to make one bit of difference in my overall fitness journey, especially since I still moved a decent amount this week. It just wasn't what I had necessarily planned for. 
If you ever have weeks like this where you feel like you're not at your best, I would love to know what strategies you use to help yourself look forward and make the most of the next week. Because that's kind of my mentality around this right now is just I'm accepting it. I'm trying to be okay with it. I'm trying to understand the thoughts that I'm having and I'm looking forward to the next week because it's a fresh start and I can plan out my workouts and hop right back into my program. One guaranteed good thing to start out the week is that I get to share this episode with you guys, which is an amazing episode with Lee Boyce, who is a coach and a fitness writer. He has a blog where he writes and talks about lots of issues in the fitness industry, and then he also writes for lots of publications, magazines, such as Men's Health, T-Nation, and Muscle and Fitness, just to name a few. He's got a really great perspective on training and so many of the things that he talked about and the ways that he approaches exercise and programming for his clients, I really resonated with and definitely agree with. We talked about how training can be rehab. We also talked about the importance of quality movement as opposed to just quantity of exercises. We also talked about helping clients to analyze why their goals are their goals. So if you have a certain weight loss goal or a certain lifting goal, can we dig a little deeper and think about why those are your goals? We talk about overcoming serious injuries and the lessons that Lee has learned from that and how his philosophy and his own personal fitness and then also for his clients and his approach has changed over the years. We talk about the fitness industry and problems that Lee sees in the fitness industry and just how to be aware of those trendy things that may not be based on really true principles. We're seeing them all over the internet, all over social media, how to be aware of those and look out for those. We also talk about training for different body types, which I think is so important because every body is constructed differently. So if we think about your proportions, your limb lengths, how your muscles are made up, what fibers are they made up of, what are your attachment points on your joints. These are all things that are going to directly affect your mechanics and therefore are gonna directly affect how strong you are through certain movement patterns. So there is a body type that is most conducive to a heavyweight squat, for example. There is a body type that is most conducive to sprinting or whatever it may be, Your body type does affect your ultimate performance. I think that this is so important for people to realize, especially if you're doing any kind of group or partner training. I think sometimes it's very easy to look over at your friend and start comparing their lift to yours and maybe questioning and wondering why they're hitting a weight on their deadlift that's so much higher than yours, when in reality, there are so many reasons why that might be the case, and it doesn't necessarily mean that you're doing the wrong thing or you're not training hard enough. I think that the most important thing we can do is to compare ourselves only to ourselves. What's your personal best and can we focus on achieving that? Because at the end of the day, that's progress and that's why we're all in the gym. We're trying to make ourselves stronger. We're not trying to be or we shouldn't be trying to be just stronger than the rest of the room. And then finally, Lee and I talk a little bit about programming and how he approaches programming for his clients. And then we talk about superstar clients and what traits that dream client has for a trainer. 
This was a really fun conversation. I think that Lee has a lot of awesome perspectives and opinions on all things fitness. So I hope that you guys enjoy this episode with Coach Lee Boyce. Could you start by just telling us a little bit about yourself and kind of what sparked your initial interest in fitness and training and where that's led to where you are today? I've been in the industry for 12 years now but uh initially i was i guess a student in high school when i uh when i first had like most interest in in fitness related stuff or just training related health related stuff you know being in sports and definitely contributed to that too i was into track and field mainly then basketball was also another one that i juggled with that and you know when i found out at first that there was actually a course in like exercise science kinesiology sort of thing that was offered in high school i was like all over it it was exercise science which is a grade 12 course and you know i took it i took it two times because i liked it so much and so oh the first God. time um you know yeah it was it was good the first time around i did it again the second time around and i took kinesiology i took it to kinesiology and university as well and i was running track in university and I, first it was like maybe i want to go like a physio Cairo-ish type of route, but I was like, I'd prefer to work with people who aren't injured and rather people who are more on the healthier side. So it's less rehab oriented, basically. And um, so that's what sort of got me into this. And it was a nice little transition in from what I'd already been doing to getting into the workforce for it. Awesome. So early on, this was a big interest of yours. Yeah, definitely. It was it was just such a natural thing. The fact that you can work in a playground, for lack of a better term, is it's <laughs> always a nice feeling and nice thing. That's the, one of the appeals to it compared to your classic desk job or office job or whatever. So yeah, I like that aspect of it. Plus, it was something that's fulfilling because of the fact that you're actually making people healthier and um, you're seeing progress as you go along. And so I, I can't complain. Cool. It's funny that you say that you wanted to not go the rehab route because the more and more I've been training, like the more I feel like I'm rehabbing people, people come in with pain and then we're dealing with that and all these other things that they don't realize are going on in their mechanics. It's interesting. Yeah. Training in many ways is rehab period. You know, like a lot of people like to make this rift or this divide between the two. But at the end of the day, truthfully, like just the amount of good quality movements that can actually act as preventative maintenance tools for somebody who is on the brink of injury or act as a remedial tool for someone who has been injured or is dealing with chronic pain or just learning how to properly execute movement patterns and make them, uh, you know, healthy again, that can be its own form of rehab, even if you're not using those empty can exercises and different very specific terminal knee extension drills or whatever you want to call it, they, they might not even need to apply for somebody to feel better and uh, be healthier as a product of their training. Yeah, it's so true. Can you just tell us a little bit about the importance of good quality movement in the gym and why you emphasize that? You hear the term quality over quantity for sure, and I'm somebody who, who definitely speaks to that myself. Quality movement in the gym versus, like, we, we look at progression in such a black and white or closed-minded way a lot of the time where we start thinking about it in terms of how much weight do you have on the bar, and that's basically it. And personally, I, I like to view progression in a little bit more of a, a holistic way or a little bit of a different multi-dimensional way where it's, you know, have you increased your range of motion through this exercise? Can you do this with a different tempo? Uh, are you showing better ownership of the weight in general? Are you doing it with less rest between your sets? In addition to the idea of lifting more weight in the exercise too, all those things can contribute to progression. That puts a little bit more of the emphasis on quality of movement and understanding the, the, the details or the fine details of a repetition and what's required of you. 
And when you can really own weight like that and, and own any sort of load or even your body weight like that, you're going to be way further ahead of the game, not only in terms of uh, how truly strong you are, but how healthy you are and how healthy you stay. So it all really hinges upon quality of exercise and quality of your movement patterns and making sure that you're using technical precision and that you're, uh, you're staying true to that. How do you help clients understand that? Because I feel that many clients come in with just wanting to lift really heavy things. So how do you sort of help them understand the value of all of these other ways that you can progress and all of these ways that they are improving? You know what, to be honest, like I try to really, really crack down on it right from the first time that we meet by way of what exercises I use to, uh, I don't know, halfway assess them, I guess. I will look at their big stuff like uh, a squat pattern and a hinge or deadlift pattern and an overhead pressing pattern. I did that today with my client, with my first time client. But uh, with that said, I will definitely show them the, the challenge that exists within doing exercises that are completely unloaded. If you can hinge with 350 pounds, that's great. But how come all of a sudden you're trembling like a leaf when I put you in a Chinese plank or when I put you in a rear support where the same muscle groups in theory are supposed to be active right now, but you can't support your own body weight. And, and all of a sudden it's exposing glaring imbalances or weaknesses that um, need your attention. So we have to get out of the rabbit hole of thinking that doing exercises with loaded bars, like uh, the big lifts or those primal movement patterns that people always talk about that are very important, that they are the all-encompassing sort of um, bees knees of training. The only thing that getting stronger and stronger and stronger those lifts do beyond a certain point, all it does will be make you more skilled at that particular task. So it's like a law of diminishing returns, kind of. I feel like training has to always, in some way, address something that you're not that great at. And then you're going to really see results or progress from that, too. Finding those things, because a lot of people, it doesn't take too long to get pretty good at deadlifts or squats, as long as all things are equal here and something didn't happen. You know, so if you can get somebody who's really proficient at squats, what do we move on to? Where else can we go, even if it means regression, even if it means going to something more grassroots or some bodyweight work or whatnot? So, like, if I sort of hammer away at that sort of thing from the get-go and show those those kinds of weak links by way of, you know, very simplistic movements and we really, really zero in on that, then we're, we're laughing. Awesome. I feel like you're getting at it a little bit, but if you had to kind of, like, summarize your philosophy when it comes to training, what would you say it is? I call myself a generalist just because of the fact that I want to be able to help the most people possible, you know, whether it's somebody who's 14 years old or somebody who's in their 80s or whatever, whether it's somebody who's an advanced lifter who's like more on the athlete side of things or somebody who is a complete beginner. So I, I do definitely try to um, incorporate all of that. And, you know, I am somebody who is into covering as many different planes of motion as possible and strengthening the big stuff as well. And I'm not the same strength focused person as I used to be. That's for sure. There's definitely um, a usefulness in that, but I just look at strength through a different uh, microscope now and just like with a different perspective. So a lot of things sort of, to me, factor in as being strong. And it's just an area that I think that the strength and conditioning world might be dropping the ball a little bit. And I would want to be a representative of the opposite side of the spectrum. And I, I try to continually ask why somebody's goals are what they are and uh, continually ask why uh, somebody wants to be as strong as certain amount that they want to lift or whatever. 
So I know I'm straying from the actual question what my style is, but um, it sort of encompasses all that, including asking those questions. Um, I, I like to try to call myself a generalist and, and train for the long lasting, you know, the long term test of time when it comes to the gym. You can't just look at things from the shelf life of, okay, in the next six months, I want to be able to do this and then what, right? Yeah, I just try to look at the long game and, and try to train for a general public to be, to be healthier and fitter and, and stronger for the long term. I love that approach to people's goals. I think often as trainers, we sort of ask people their goals, ask for clients' goals and take that as the end all be all. Like it is our job to get them to that goal and that's it. But sort of asking those further questions about why and what is their intention behind it and guiding them through that. Like those are the kinds of things that inevitably will come out eventually. Like you'll start to understand the motivations behind them. But I don't know. I like that philosophy as of kind of, asking them and trying to understand why is it that we want to deadlift 500 pounds? Like, what is that really getting us? Right. Yeah, it's a cool approach. Yeah, it's something that I believe that, you know, anybody who works with clients should want to know at some point, you know, especially if you're not somebody who's a, a performance oriented person who's on like a team or who's working as, a, as an athlete or a power lifting background or Olympic lifting background or some kind of competitor. If this is just you with your recreational pursuit of fitness and training, and the real goal is to get healthier and fitter and so on, why should there really be a number altogether, right? Mm -hmm. um, we've got to keep on constantly comparing ourselves just to our previous selves, and that's what's going to really create long-lasting fulfillment anyway, and you'll have much less to sort of compare yourself to when you just think of things in the singular terms, and um, you'll be probably better off in all factors, including mental side of things too. So it's a good way to look at this for the long-term game. And it's something that I try to uh, stay true to myself. Yeah. How has your outlook on training evolved? And why do you think that it's changed over the years? Getting older. Like that's, that's <laughs> the main thing. Like it, my outlook on training, let's say when I was 25 was there should be no ceiling on how strong you get. Everybody must deadlift everybody must be married to the big three lifts or big four lifts or however many. Everybody must uh, think about constantly doing uh, a progressive overload with those lifts. And if they're not in your program at all, all times of the year, then you've got a problem. And that's not a useful way of thinking when it comes to, again, that long-term game that I'm talking about. So the way that it usually happens by way of a rude awakening for most people who think the way that I said that I thought there is something happens. Maybe it's an injury. Maybe it's, you know, you run out of energy or you get some kind of condition that puts you out for a little while or whatnot. And then you realize, well, this kind of training method, you could do it in, on paper, but it's not that sustainable, right? Mm -hmm. For me, there's a number of things that I'm sure your few next questions are going to end up making me touch on anyway. But for me, it's a matter of where am I, what are my priorities in just life right now compared to what they were when I was 23? What is my work capacity now than it was back then? How many little things have happened to me over the time in terms of like, you know, how my shoulders, my knees, my ankles, all that stuff feel compared to then? Uh, how much stress is in my life? How much sleep am I getting? All those things. How many responsibilities do I have now compared to 10 years ago? And is one concomitant with the other? Does one allow me to train at the same level or the same uh, amount of intensity that I trained before or use those big lifts and train heavy twice a week 
like I did before? Uh, maybe not, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's about the sustainability of it. And that's what has changed the most for me. Just life has changed because of the fact that I'm a busier guy now. I'm an older guy now. My joints aren't the same as they used to. Like all sorts of things that I could list off. One person might call them excuses. The next person might call using your head and training smart. I've started training I'd say around 27 or so, I started training a lot more intuitively where you have back off days, you have back off sets, you take a day off the gym, you have like all that sort of thing. And, you know, you deload if you need to, you don't lift heavy, you focus on other aspects of your health and fitness so that you're not just training things that you're already really good at to just get a little bit better at them. Like if you look at my stuff somewhere around 2000 and I don't know, 12 or so compared to today, you'd see a lot of changes in terms of what exercise I highlight even. Lots of body weight stuff, lots of single leg and kettlebell and unilateral stuff and, you know, just a whole lot of body weight stuff too. You know, people get humbled with that sort of thing, especially big guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's fair. Was there uh, some kind of big turning points or something that happened in your life that caused sort of this change or did it happen over time? It happened over time, but something that definitely put it over the edge was in 2017 when I, uh, I ruptured both of my patellar tendons at the same time. So um, I had a... Oh my God. Yeah, so I was, I spent like uh, an entire summer in a wheelchair that year. Uh, I had a double reconstructive knee surgery. The, my, my patellas were sitting up on my thighs when it happened. happened. Like I was dunking a basketball and on the takeoff, that's when they decided to go both on me. So I was pretty out of it for the entire summer and it took long rehab. I'm two years past now and it's still like, you're not the same since that sort of thing happens, right? I'm pretty pleased with where things have gotten based on how much rehabbing that I've done and so on and how on top of things I tried to stay, but it'll never be the same. And, you know, it happened at age 30 compared to if I was, you know, 50, let's say, or if I was 60 years old, like these are things that certain people might not come back from even if they do it on one leg. This was a major turning point for me because when I did that, I had squatted a whole bunch of weight that same week earlier, you know, and I had been deadlifted. I'd been doing all my lifts and everything like that. And I'd been training in the gym five days a week, like I normally would. And I was strong and I was, you know, I had everything going on, but then this still happens to me. So I'm thinking to myself, what didn't I do with my training or with my own physical fitness and health that made this still happen? There is a whole list of things that I did to create the perfect storm for that injury to happen in the first place as far as like not being warmed up enough, not having played ball enough and all that stuff. But what about just from an in-shape perspective? What wasn't I doing? To me, the answer was, okay, I was focusing too much on like five or six major lifts and not enough on actually getting in shape. You know, what was I doing to actually be an athletic person so that the resiliency of my connective tissue could handle that sort of stuff so that there wasn't any shock factor when I did. What, what athletic things am I doing in the gym period, right? That's where I really started making some changes, especially. And so, yeah, you know, body weight, this body weight, that kettlebell, sandbag, you name it, change up the whole dimensions of the training. And, you know, you can still do a squat with a sandbag. It's still a squat. You can still do an overhead press with kettlebells instead of a bar. But like, you, you just have to think outside that box all the time. And that's what's going to make people a lot healthier in general. Way more well-rounded. Actually thinking about big picture, for sure. Yeah. That's a lot to go through, though. Humbling. Can we talk about the fitness industry a little bit? This is a topic sure. that I noticed you do a lot of writing on. In your opinion, what is the biggest problem in the fitness industry right now? And then maybe what can people be doing to solve it? 
there's a lot of campy behavior where people will choose an extremist community to belong to and identify by or identify with. So whether you are a, and I'm just going to throw these names out here, whether you're a power lifter or a crossfitter or a bodybuilder or a, like there's no general publicer. There's no regular personer, right? And even still, like if you are somebody who is just a regular person, they start belonging to a demographic as well. Find that these things can start creating a little bit more of a division within the industry and amongst the members of the community so that it just spawns more arguments. One professional saying that this professional is wrong with their approach and this professional saying that that professional is wrong with their approach because they come from different backgrounds, right? Instead of thinking about the good things that each can bring to the table in some way, shape, or form. I don't want to have to identify with some template. It's not really a great look, and it doesn't do anything to benefit our industry as a profession. So you've got somebody who is uh, 45 years old who's never set foot in the gym in their life, and they see people like this who are really, really headstrong about what their particular views are and how close-minded they are to others. That might be a deterrent for them. What about where we can all find common ground about training? If you hate CrossFit, name 10 things you can think of that are great about it. If you, if you can't stand power lifters or that culture, name five things that you think that are fantastic about it. That fractious relationship that we have uh, amongst members in the, in the industry starts becoming people's identity and it starts really, really messing with um, how they cast themselves out as fitness professionals and that can rub off on everybody else. Yeah, that's so true. I kind of see like two parts to that. The first is in the way that people look at exercises. It starts to lead you down this rabbit hole of like there's a right and a wrong way to do things in the gym, which I just hate. It's one of my biggest pet peeves because I just I just think that there's something to learn from many, many different approaches. The actual exercises themselves, but also what you're alluding to with like socially creating these like really strict camps. Oh, we do it this way versus you do it that way. And it's not creating this bigger community that would be so much more powerful to have. I totally see that and, and definitely agree. How do we make fitness more approachable to everyone? Making, making sure that mainstream platforms in general, whether it's television, media, music, radio, um, podcasts, magazines, and so on, making sure that they market things more in a manner that isn't sensationalized. The quick fix stuff, the get fit right. in 30 days, right? Taking those messages out of the picture for sure in terms of uh, fitness methods don't become trends compared to things that are actually evergreen that last the test of time. The trend factor is huge. A lot of main mainstream media outlets will take a cause or whatever and they'll run with it and they'll turn it into a trend and then people go crazy with it. Whether it's a diet as well because we haven't even talked about the nutrition side of things too because it's huge in there. Getting that out of the out of the world so that people can actually focus on you know here's what you need to do. It's going to take a long time, but we're here to support you and here's how to do it properly. You know, that's going to make people a little bit more warm towards the idea of being um, good to each other, but also um, recognizing that they can, they too can do this. Yeah, for sure. How do you feel like the internet and social media has affected the industry? And do you think it's for the better or for the worse? It's a two-edged sword. Internet and social media has affected the industry because it's made great information much more accessible to people. Think about high-traffic websites, for example. You think about actual Instagram and social media accounts of certain professionals. But I think that the other side of the sword comes because then you have people who are passing off themselves as experts when they're not. Passing themselves off as people who have experience when they don't. 
even if they don't call themselves experts, they might make their entire thread nothing but, they'll call it fitspiration or, you know, all the selfies and all this stuff where you're, you know, you're just flexing all the time, like whatever it is, like, you know, they'll call it motivation, they'll call it these nearly nude photos that people will put up of themselves and whatever. And it's like, it's one thing to be able to be happy with your body or flaunted, but we only look at this from one perspective. We look at it from the perspective of they're very confident and they're trying to inspire us. What if they're a cry for help because they're the least confident out of all of us? And so they're doing this because they need the positive reinforcement, the validity and all that sort of thing. Well, now we're taking inspiration from a sick person, for lack of a better term. Who's the better off? I can go off on a rant with that sort of thing for a long time. So what I will say is that it's definitely a double-edged sword. And there's a lot of stuff that we need to sort of sift between or among in order to find the good quality content. We have to just be really, really careful, especially if we're somebody who doesn't really know too much about fitness. You know, you, you can usually see whether there is substance pretty quickly as long as you've got a discerning mind. For someone that's sort of newer to fitness and looking for good quality information, how would they decipher the real stuff from the bullshit? For one, just how much absolutes there are in the, the, the things that they say. So this is the number one this or this is never to be done ever. Like when you start speaking in superlatives like that, you know, best, worst, always, never, off, like all that stuff, that's not a good sign. This is an industry that's based primarily on inference. We never have a hard and fast answer for anything. Human body is different from every person to person. Besides this, social media and stuff, what are your other favorite topics to write about? In training t- content, like articles for like magazines and, and publications like that, then these days especially, just being able to use less to achieve more. Like I use the Chinese plank example, like things like that, like what are really exposing exercises that are way tougher than they look compared to how heavy you can go and how much you can lift or what your deadlift is and all that sort of stuff. I like talking about manipulating things like tempo and uh, manipulating things like your rep speed and your rep ranges and all that sort of stuff in order to make the same load feel more challenging. I like giving reality checks with regards to what we're really in this for as far as the long haul. When I sort of, when I get outside of the training world and I talk about the things that I see in the industry, I guess just things from a sociocultural perspective where it's like, how is the current way that the, the, the industry is sort of set up, how we're all thinking, how we're all delivering information, how we're all fighting with each other or how we're all not fighting, whatever the situation is, how is that having an impact on the consumer or the person who's not involved with fitness or how is that making our industry look to others? So that's kind of, those are the two, I guess, main areas that I will look at. So you said that you work with all different types of people. Do you, do you have some sort of demographic that you tend towards working with or is it really honestly just all age ranges, all skill levels? It is, except uh, I, just based on the pace of places I've worked. So I worked at a medical clinic back in 2010 to 2012 in the finance district of Toronto. And so because of that, it was a lot of exec type 40 plus type of people, the, the Bay Streeters and so on. And so um, that was 90% of the demographic that was down there or, or more. Because of that, I ended up having a whole lot of like, you know, there's a lot of referrals that will come from that sort of crowd as well. And so, you know, when I went on my own from 2012 and onwards, I've noticed that that still dominates, you know, a stable job, they're 
Bay Street type, relatively high income earning type of person um, that isn't going anywhere. It makes for some good stability in the in the in the job, which is great. But you know, because of the places that I write and all that sort of thing, um, then I'll get the, the lifting enthusiast as well. You know, male or female who's really into it, and um, they're younger and they're ready to go, and they have different types of goals and so on. You know, it makes for some nice variety. I have a couple of people who are involved in sport as well, who are pretty serious athletes. Lately, I've been doing a lot of talking. I'd say the last three or so years about training for different leverages and body types, and um, how that should sort of differ between one person to another if they're you know different proportions, right? And so being a tall guy myself, I've been attracting a lot of taller lifters and a lot of people who see that I can see what their struggle is. What are the different challenges for bigger guys, for taller people? There's a lot. It depends on, so if we're talking about from a strength training perspective, then we have to start looking at things like physics and whether or not the leverages and levers actually are accounted for in the same way as somebody who's more built. You see, training for strength, trying to get the numbers up, which a lot of people want to do, that's like a sport in a way. Usually in that sport, you're going to be better off if you have the dimensions and body type that's conducive to that sport. You look at most gymnasts out there. You look at most sprinters out there. You look at most volleyball stars out there and so on. Like there's going to swimmers. There's another great example. You're going to see to a degree, especially the more elite and elite and elite that you get, you're going to see more uh, of a homogeneous mixture when it comes to what they look like. And there'll be outliers, but I'm not making a stretch by saying that. So we're making a goal of getting stronger and stronger and stronger, and maybe even reaching some strength standard or something like that. It wouldn't be a great advantage to us if we were already in proportion, leverage-wise and proportion-wise, built for this. So when you're six foot six and you have a 40-inch inseam and your femur is two and a half feet long, and you're trying to conventional deadlift double body weight and you weigh 275, well, is that as realistic as a guy who's 165, who's five foot eight with a long torso who does the same thing? That's where it really, really changes things because when in the pursuit of strength, it's like, you know, you got to make accommodations for your length and your leverages and maybe even take a different look at all this. When it comes to the conditioning side of things, you know, you got a big guy or a big lady or whatever who's doing a Tabata workout, let's say. Well, let me see here. You're 280. You're actually in pretty good shape as well at 280, but it takes more energy to run your body, period. So you're going to go and do 20 seconds of a big compound movement, even if it's body weight, like a squat, and then you're going to rest for 10 seconds. And your goal is to do that eight times over, times a number more of exercises, and you think that you're going to get away with it the same way a 140 guy would well, it's not going to have the same training effect on you. We have to chase rates of perceived exertion compared to just looking at this number, 20 seconds on, 10 seconds off, eight times, five exercise, whatever. That's a lot to ask for a bigger person because of just the fact that it's going to take a lot more out of them. So we have to think about what are we going to do? Are we going to manipulate our rest interval? Are we going to manipulate what exercise we use those methods for? Are we going to think about what exercises are going to cause the same effect on us compared to somebody else? Are we going to look at our lifting percentages for those German volume training workouts, for example? GVT, 10 by 10, 65% of your max. Well, for a guy with a 500 max who's 280, there's no way that they're going to do 10 sets of 10 reps and six seconds of rest with like 300 pounds. Like, it's not going to happen. You yeah. know, <laughs> it's just, it's too, the implement is too heavy. I, I've become much bigger on not chasing percentages as much or those kinds of fixed metrics 
Uh, and, and instead, I really, really like to chase the rates of perceived exertion, especially for people who fall under that category and who are in the, you know, whether it's a big and tall person um, or somebody who's really trying to hit a strength standard or whatnot, I really try to, um, you know, think about all those different factors before making my decisions on how I program for them. It's such a good point that different body types and different structures just translate better to certain things and certain skills. I feel that oftentimes in, when we run classes, people will look at their partner and they'll think, well, she can do that weight, so I should be able to do that weight without really considering what is your body set up to do and what might you be better at? I just feel like there's a lot of compassion when we start to understand it's not just because they worked harder that they're hitting maybe a bigger weight than you are. It may just be their body type. And we need to just like understand that and be okay with that. And that goes back to what you were saying. And like, let's just be better than you were yesterday compared to yourself. Let's get a little bit better based on what you are able to do and where you are coming from. A hundred percent. And also the idea of force feeding certain movements or certain exercises, like, you know, this is a deadlift with a barbell and this is how we do things here or whatever, or it's the most important exercise. Here's a back squat with a barbell or a front squat with a barbell on the but Well, if your body type doesn't allow for it to be an easy way without you really, really placing stress on your back, for example, then how about a trap bar? How about a safety bar squad because your shoulder or whatever it is, right? So just being able to be open to such accommodations because of leverages or because of a history of injury or whatever it is, that's going to be invaluable to, you know, a trainer and it's going to be just as invaluable to the client because it's going to save them from injury and salvage their joints. Not only just the leverages and body type, but it's also, you know, injury safety and, and history and just looking at things. You can keep you, it can keep a client around for a much longer time too. Yeah, for sure. Based on my body type, my ankle mobility is not great. So I only front squat. Like I decided I, I was trying to force it for so long and I just decided why am I forcing my body to try to back squat when I could just front squat so much more successfully. I feel way better, no pain. So it's just something that I guess you have to learn about yourself and be okay with because what are these arbitrary standards that we're setting for certain lifts that we have to do? It doesn't really make sense. I have no idea where the strength standard came from. My suspicion is that the strength standard was made by somebody who was either around a lot of elite lifters or athletes of some sort to get to base these numbers off of, or the person who was capable of doing the strength standard or whatever was a very small person. <laughs> and why I say that is because when you start talking about like, 2.5 times body weight deadlift or two times body weight squat and so on, a guy 300 is not going to hit that number. It's unlikely that somebody is going to go and hit a 600 squat or a 750 deadlift. Like, come on. These are, this is Bob from accounting we're talking about here. You know, it's a totally different demographic depending on who you're talking to. So, hey, if we're talking about elite power lifter, then sure, you might just make standard. Like, okay, I'm six foot four, I'm 250 pounds. And before I got injured, I was deadlifting 550 pounds. So that was two times body weight and a hair. Two and a half times body weight. Like, are you kidding? I wasn't even close. So does that mean that I'm not strong enough? Like, no, come on. We have to look at strength from a different perspective, right? And so, um, you know, we have to also think about where these things came from. I don't know where they came from, but I just don't think that people should be really um, hung up on them or caught up with them so much. Bigger fish to fry. Yeah. 
what does your programming look like for your clients? How do you approach it? I'm going to try to make a post on this actually on, on my social media, just in terms of how simplistic I really try to take things. Um, but I'll tell you this, my bread and butter that I like to use a whole lot with a lot of different clients, especially if they fit the general demographic that we've been talking about the most, say the person's goal is conditioning, which most clients tend to be right now. I like a vertical push pull day. I like a horizontal push pull day. I like another vertical push pull day. And if there's a fourth day in there for them, I like an accessory day where they focus on stuff that we don't really, that don't really fit any of those categories, right? Or the things that you get left out. I like two vertical push pull days that cover most of the big quality movements. And then there's all sorts of room for other stuff in there too. I like a horizontal push pull day that covers quality movements and also what leads for other stuff too. And then I like some accessory stuff so you can A, play around, maybe some loaded carries in there. It covers all the bases and it does it in a fairly comprehensive way that still attacks the total body. And it allows for a lot of, because I'm just using headings, right? So it allows for a lot of playroom from client to client in terms of what they need more of and what they need less of. Whereas I'll give one client an overhead squat on a vertical pull, uh, push pull day. I'll give another client a lat pull down or something like that mm-hmm. or a chin up. But as long as I follow that general structure, it makes for a good sort of little setup and it keeps it different for the client from day to day too, which is, which is pretty good too. Cool. Do you tend to run four week programs, six week programs? How do you break that down? Uh, I like actually going the eight week route. I find there's some benefit from it just because of the fact that with eight week programming blocks, it allows for the client to build a skill I'm not saying that the other methods are wrong or anything like that, but I will say that I like going a little bit longer just so that there's a real understanding of a movement pattern. You can really hammer away at it for some time. They can build that skill and then move on to something different or move on to a different programming goal. Mm-hmm. Um, so whereas one was focusing more on total body, then we could get into more of upper, lower, or an isolated style more so. Cool. I started off with four-week programs, but I found that I always wanted the extra week or two, especially with someone that had to learn new lifts or learn new skills. You just always wanted that extra time. But I've actually never tried an eight-week program with a client before. I'd be interested to see how that would work. First, I thought it would be really long as well. But A, it goes by pretty quickly. But B, you know, I, I haven't really heard any sort of negative feedback from it. Cool. Was there, is there anyone that stands out in your mind, a client that was a very rewarding client for you to work with? Yeah, a lot of them, actually. So much of it depends on, you know, just the person's attitude toward training in the first place. There's even people who are a little bit too much of a good thing sometimes where they're just way too OCD about it. They're over the top with it. And where your need to actually say, you know what, you need to take things back a notch and just calm down a little bit with this. Somebody who strikes that perfect balance where they understand that there's life outside of the gym, but at the same time, they're serious about their goals and they know what they have to do to accomplish them. And that's your home run right there. And so I can think of certain people who fit that category for sure. You know, they're the unicorns where you don't find one of those every day, but, um, you know, they stand out when they do. And this particular client that I'm thinking of, uh, the first name I was thinking of, he was a really, really solid client. Show up for every workout. He wouldn't miss. He would do the things that you tell him to on his own as well, which is like, it's really, it's half the battle when you're actually doing your homework. And, you know, he'd eat well. He hired a nutritionist on the side as well. So that there's doing a tandem approach with both training and nutrition. So he's getting the results. His goal was to build muscle and get bigger. And he jumped up in weight and he was staying lean. And, you know, it was just, it was just the right balance of everything. And he was really, really doing the right things. So you know, I couldn't speak highly enough of him. And, you know, it was, it was a great experience to work with. He allowed me to try a lot of different methods that most people, 
don't end up giving you the chance to get to because they have to keep on restarting day one because they're, you know, they're not doing what they need to be doing. When you have the chance to actually progress with somebody, it allows you to try different programs out for one. It allows you to see or get certain feedback from exercises, a variety of exercises. And, you know, it's just, it builds you up as a coach too. I at one time I wrote an article that was in my blog and it was about whether or not programming for every single client is an absolute necessity. I was talking about whether when you have somebody who's one day a week or the only times that they, they, they train are the times that they're working out with you. So it could be a grand total of six or eight workouts a month. Are you giving them a program that you want to follow with them when you're in front of them if they're not even doing anything outside of it? And there's only so much we can do as trainers where our goal is kind of to navigate their progress rather than, you know, be a babysitter. Is there even much purpose in having more than a very, very vague general structure to a program when you're seeing somebody eight times per month, right? And um, I wrote a whole big thing about it and so on. And it's like, it's a great question to ask because you have a client like the one I just described who's putting in all the work and doing all of the things they need to do and they're diligent and they're on top of things. And then you have another client who is doing literally one-tenth of that it's not the same amount of effort that's being put into it. So I don't know if it really requires as much critical thinking in terms of what's going to, it's the difference between exercise and training, basically, right? Somebody who's training for a certain goal and there's another person who's, you know, they're doing it because time for their appointment and it's some exercise and that's it. And you know, they'll be right back to square one the the following week, right? Yeah. Anyway, he was the total opposite of that. He was great. That's awesome. That sounds amazing. That's like every trainer's dream. Someone that yeah, cares about time. all the pieces and does the work outside. And that's great. There is a message for a lot of trainers or aspiring trainers out there. It's the sad reality is that that is indeed a unicorn where if you think that all of your clients are going to end up being like that, they're absolutely not. It, you know, it largely depends on the demographics that you work with. But if you're going to try to end up working with people in the general public, then just be prepared there's going to be a limit on how much accountability that you can take personally for a lot of the client's decisions to how they want to sort of direct their life outside of the gym. And if they're not getting in for their own workouts or they're not doing the homework that you tell them and they're not eating the way that you, you hope that they were, they're not going the extra nine yards themselves. Well, the results are going to show for it. And then the amount of effort that you need to put in outside of providing the service correctly and so on and making sure they stay safe and whatever and training them properly and showing up for your appointments, the amount of effort that in terms of your own homework that you're putting into it, that should be put into question just a little bit in terms of whether or not a full-scale periodized program is something that they have earned themselves because this is serious expertise here that we're talking about. And, uh, you know, it needs to be a two-way street in terms of the amount of effort that's being put in. Yeah, definitely. I have just one final question for you. I ask everyone this that comes on the podcast. Um, But what makes you excited to get out of bed in the morning? Well, you know, I don't want to give the trite response and say, like, you know, helping so many people achieve their goals. (laughs) You know, it's not that that's not the answer because, sure, I really enjoy what I do. And I love this job. But. I guess maybe being in competition with my own self, to be honest. I always want to try to find an opportunity to to do great, something great, you know, bigger things, better things, whatever it is. You know, whether it's beat my last year or beat my year before in terms of different things that I've been able to get into or do or whatever, that fire within sort of spawns from my own self and wanting to probably stemming from some deep-seated terrible insecurity or something like that, (laughs) but beat my own self 
something along those lines. I, I like that own little competition that I sort of put in my own head. To me, it actually feels good. Like I like it. Hope that it's not a problem. You can get I back to us in 20 years about whether that's a problem or not. We'll see. Yeah, exactly. Right. If I'm a complete basket case by then. Right. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, I definitely have a, a little bit of a drive or a push to try to do some really good stuff and, you know, continue striving for some kind of big thing or whatever. And that's what keeps me motivated for sure. And you know, it helps that I really enjoy this work. And so it's not any sort of hassle for me to go after it. I love that. If people want to find you, get information from you, read some of the things you've written, find you on social media, how do they do that? My social, first of all, is all at Coach Lee Boyce. So that's Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. I have it all. And my uh, website is leeboystraining.com. You'll find all the blogs that I was referring to on there. And uh, then I have archived all of my articles and stuff from different publications and mags on there as well um tv stuff too so it's all it's all there somewhere on the website i guess that's it send me an email lee at leeboystrain.com as well if you have any questions i'm pretty responsive on social media as far as questions go so if you want to direct message me about stuff then i'm there as well catch me on shelves in different publications each month i don't know which ones but i'm in something (laughs) (laughs) awesome Thank you so much, Lee. This has been great. I've learned a lot. Yeah, likewise. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast this week, guys. I hope that everybody enjoyed that episode. Remember, we release a new episode every Monday morning, so always be on the lookout for those. Make sure that you hit subscribe. I also really appreciate all the ratings and reviews. They really mean a lot to me. Even better, if you have someone in your life that you think would benefit from hearing the messages and the topics that we're discussing in this podcast, please share the show with them. It helps spread the word about how do you feel. If you want to follow along with me and my journey, you can follow me on Instagram at KZMZav. Or you can find the podcast website, howdoyoufeelpodcast.com. That's all I have for you this week, guys. Make sure that you get out there and do something that makes you feel good today.